Welcome back to another Ag Watchers. We've got a special guest on here to talk about one of the important topics of the moment, which is fertilizer. To give you a bit of context, at the moment, if we're looking at urea prices, FOB urea in um, New Orleans is sitting above 650 Aussie dollars a tonne. Add your freight on top of that and your margins, and it starts to get pretty, pretty expensive, especially at a time when we need it all. So we thought it was interesting when we saw about the Lee Creek development in uh, South Australia and about how they've got extremely low-cost production of urea. So we invited Justin Peters along, who's the chairman of Lee Creek Energy. And Lee, eh, Justin, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming along. Great to be here, guys. Justin, can you give us just a quick, short, short sort of intro on, on who you are and what you do at Lee Creek? Um, I'm the chairman of Lee Creek Energy. Uh, we formed as a company around about six years ago with the uh, number one task of, in South Australia, uh, producing syngas, so synthetic gas. And I went through the process of looking at the end use for that synthetic gas, and we can make things if we wanted to, like diesel, methanol, um, ammonia, use it for power generation, or actually even put the gas into a pipeline and just sell it as natural gas. But over that five-year period of approvals and obtaining you know, uh, partners and looking at where we we're going, and once we did the pre-feasibility study for the project, it became very, very clear to us there was a huge opportunity um, in South Australia, but also in Australia, uh, to manufacture urea. And that became very, very clear when we did the feasibility study. It became clear when we were talking to people that there was an opportunity for a company who could actually make urea at a much cheaper price. Uh, there was going to be really a good commercial model that would work from. So we've been working now for about the last three years on getting to the point where uh, we've got ourselves ready to go and start construction of a urea plant. So what, what's the, what stage are you guys at, at the moment? Like, uh, like what... stage, any of these large projects take years to get underway. And, and by that, I mean, the, just the permitting and the licensing process takes a long time. We're lucky as a company. We're already past that now. So when we started that five-year period uh, to where we started to where we are today, you know, we had to get a petroleum license. To get a petroleum license, you had to get an expiration license and then a retention license and then a production license. During that process, you've got to go through your environmental approvals. You've got to deal with all your stakeholders on it. So we were lucky enough after you know, a lot of hard years of hard work, we got our production license last year. So from a permitting point of view, we're fully licensed now at Lee Creek to go ahead and produce the syngas. So what's we're, the, sorry, I was going to say, what's the time frame in which you, you know, you've got to still do some, I guess, uh, construction works now that are the, the, the actual construction works. Um, are we talking another year or two before you're producing or? Oh, look, I'd love to say two years, but it's more likely to be three years before we're producing. Um, and one of the reasons for that, guys, is, you know, when you're building an ammonia plant and a urea plant, you know, that's a $2 billion plus project. The, just the engineering side of that takes a long time. You can't commit to spending all that money on a bank feasibility, a feed, which is the front end engineering of the project, until you're pretty comfortable you've gotten past a lot of those milestones and KPIs you need. We're at that point now where we've gotten past the, the major issues and now we're going through that um, engineering process, a little bit procurement, just to procure some of the equipment takes 18 months. And on top of that, you know, we, we still have to go through 
a few more permits in the construction of the plants, not the gas side, but the construction of the ammonia and the urea plant. Um, so, you know, there's still a lot of work to do, but um, there's one thing we've never been afraid of. And Matt, we thought it was difficult getting permits for a pig farm. Yeah. The- but- <laughs> so- well, I, 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 always, I always tell people about a story with Adani. Um, Adani originally bought the coal mine up in Queensland, uh, Carmichael, they call it. Everyone knows who Adani is. Everyone knows the problems they had. I can very distinctly remember sitting down with the boss of Adani when they had a look at this mine back in 2008. And he asked the government how long it would take for him to get his permitting to get up to production. And he was told three years. Right, and, Adani, and Adani only finally got through the process last year. That's over 10 years you're sitting there working with government departments and stakeholders. It's scary. So the fact that we got it in such a quick time was an amazing thing and something I wasn't expecting that we would be able to get it that quickly. So one of the... One of the one of the main talking points, and and I've I've been following your your ASX releases over, over the over the period because you obviously you're you're a listed company, and one of the things that we've read about is you're looking at a production cost on urea of about 109 dollars a ton. Yep, that's low. That's low compared to the rest of the world. How come I, I, how come you can get it to that level? Uh, so that, that's our production cost. That won't be what we're selling it at, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, I was going to go into that. <laughs> no, no, it'll be 112. If you're a shareholder of my company, you're going to want me to sell it $2 cheaper than our competitors. Um, and it really is as simple as that. So my son said to me, oh, you know, I can get it for 200 bucks, 150 bucks. You know, my MD says to me, slap them around the ears. We're selling it at a discount to the current price, not mm. premium on our production price. But to answer your question, how do we do it so cheap? Look, it's really simple mathematics, okay? It's nothing, you know, we don't sit here and, and say we've reinvented the wheel and we're the heroes that can do it cheap. It's just simple maths. And I'll give you the example. Let's say it depends on how old your urea plant is. If it's a new one, then you can probably get away with about 23, let's say 25 for the sake of maths, 25 gigajoules of gas per tonne of urea. An old one or an inefficient one can be sort of 30 to 35 gigs per ton. Now, we we can make our gas at about a dollar twenty, right? A dollar twenty a gig. So if you look at our input price for a ton of urea, we're looking at around about thirty to thirty-five dollars a ton is our gas price. Right. Yep. Now think about our competitor. Our competitors, um, the very cheapest any of them are going to be able to get it at is five dollars a gig. It's currently if you're looking at contract Track prices at the moment is around about $10 a gigajoule. And if you're looking at East Coast spot market, it's, it actually peaked at about $18 a gig last week. Now, we wouldn't expect it to stay there. So we would think that sort of around that $10 mark is going to be around about the price you're paying for gas. And remember, guys, that's because that's how you make urea. I mean, you actually get gas and you split that gas into a synthetic gas known as syngas and you manufacture urea. You go to ammonia and then you go to urea through that process. Our competitors, if they're paying $10 a gig, but I'll be generous to them. I'll go generous and give them $5 a gig is what they're going to pay for it. If they can do that, they're doing well, by the way. But at $5 a gig, their gas price per tonne is $125 a tonne. We're $30 to $35 a tonne. So simply on the gas price alone, right, we save ourselves $100 a tonne in the, in the, the cost. Secondly, we manufacture it in South Australia. So if we want to sell it into South Australia, we can stick it on a train and move it around. Logistically, it's very easy. 
anyone who's our competitor, if they're manufacturing it overseas, or even if they're manufacturing interstate, still have to transport. But if you're bringing it in from the Middle East or from China, you're adding about 30 to 40 bucks a tonne onto that cost, right? And then you've got a middleman involved as well. When you start adding all those things up, you start seeing why your price is sitting there at the moment between $700 a tonne. And while we're saying we can do it much, much cheaper than that, it's because we manufacture it cheaper. So we're not worried if someone wants to take us on on a price war, that they can't do it, right? Because they cannot get their gas at that price. And if you look at someone like Incidec Pivot, um, Incitec have made it very well known in the media. So I'm not saying anything that hasn't been well publicised out there. Incitec Pivot have made it very clear that if they can't get cheap gas for Gibson Island in Queensland, and I think that the price they stated was, it used to be around about 4 or $5, and they have difficulty making a profit if it's over $8 a gigajoule. You just look at the maths. If they can't um, get cheap gas up there, then it's actually cheaper for them to import from overseas. So we're competing with an overseas market at the moment. We're not competing with the domestic market. We'll supply to the domestic market, but our manufacturers that we're competing against are actually overseas. And that's, would there be? Would, would sorry? Would there be? You're saying it's not. You're not just focused on the domestic market, though. I presume you're also looking at what you can export as well. I, I, I think yeah. wouldn't it be. Well, well, there's there's a couple of things to that. The first is that um, we had the ability. We'll, the project originally will start at um, a million ton of urea. That's our first step. Um, you know, if we're making money hand over fist and everything's running smoothly, we have the ability to be able to move up to two million ton a year of urea. Now, you think about the Australian market, the Australian market is just over 2 million tonne a year. I think the South Australian market's around about 600,000 tonne a year. So if we look at that million tonne, go back to the million tonne again, if we're doing the million tonne, we could move 600,000 tonne of that into the South Australian market very easily, right? It's cost effective. I mean, we're making it in South Australia. There's a train line from Lee Creek down to Port Augusta. You can move your product around very easily, right? And then, so the whole South Australian market could be covered from the Lee Creek project. You have around 400,000 tonne left. Okay, now the advantage of that, of course, is that if you're going to the Northern Hemisphere, then you're actually dealing with opposite parts of the year. So you're actually using urea in one part of the year in South Australia, and then the other part of the year, you're actually feeding into the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. You know, and if you look at, we're talking about a, a dot on the market. You know, if you look at the, the world demand for urea is around about 110 million tonne a year. Uh, if you look at Southeast Asia, including Australian market, it's 24 million tonne a year. If you look at Australia, it's 2 million tonne a year. And we're talking about initially starting at 1 million tonne a year. And and I'll just go back to the, the point you made. And I think it, it is a valid point. When uh, when farmers are listening to this, I just want to reiterate, when we talk about $109 a tonne, it is <laughs> the production cost, not the cost yeah. that you're going to get on farm. Um, nope. But... And you say that obviously you are going to be looking to maximise the profit for the shareholders, and that is what you should be doing. Yeah. Uh, but in the end of the day, if you're adding a million tons of supply into the local market, that will have an impact upon local prices because of import parity and, and whatnot. So, a million tons of extra supply in a in a look. I'm looking at export imports just now. We're talking about two million odd tons of imports a year. Yep. Having having a million or more tons even having half a million tons would impact upon that supply and demand balance which, assuming, which would remove some of the freight costs yeah but that's assuming that they can compete with us then they keep bringing it in if we put mm. a million ton into the market that that my view is it'll take a million ton out of that current imports. import amount i don't think you'll see a million ton coming in from us and 
our competitors bringing a million tonne overseas to compete with us, they won't be able to compete in price. So they're not going to go and buy it. Um, it it's going to be interesting, though. I mean, I agree with you that it, you're going to have to see, suck it and see what the market does when we hit the market. You're going to have to yep. see what our competitors do when we hit the market. Um, you know, there's some inventive ways you can resolve those issues well in advance. So, for instance, we, you know, we've talked openly about an offtake agreement. You know, do we, do we, do we, for instance, set up our own distribution arm uh, around Australia or particularly in South Australia, move that urea through our own arm and actually um, sell direct to the farmers, right? And then you're going to get rid of the middleman. Or do you tap into the current network that's there, do an offtake agreement with somebody who's already there, they buy it in bulk and then they just move it through, right? And um, they pass the discount on to the farmers. You know, there's a couple of different models you can use on this. One of them is very attractive to me and to our company. Um, and the other one, which is the uh, offtake agreement to one of somebody who's already there, um, is an easier model, but I don't think it is a better model. I just think it's easier for us to go that path. And I guess, some, of, I guess and some so. of our investors would like that one because they would think that uh, they get the certainty of in advance you've already sold your urea. And you've also, you've also, to an extent, you've got a, a lot of farmers like to have access to those agronomists and whatnot as well yeah. which which helps yeah. so so no like i think it, i think it's very exciting and it's and it's obviously you say it's a long way away it's three years away yeah three year, three, three three, not a long way away I it's not it's not that long way really it's it's, ah. it's pretty close and and you did get i, I did read a, a couple of releases in the last couple of days that you did get some uh some debt or some some yeah, financing we, out of korea is that right yeah we did oh, so there's two parts there we just well, we signed for stage two, which is the actual urea and ammonia plant, we signed an EPCCF contract. So normally it's an engineering procurement and construction contract. On top of that, we, we threw in the fact that they were going to fund it or they offered funding for it. So if we were looking at roughly about $2 billion, depending on a, a couple of things, but, um, you know, two $2.4 billion, they've committed. So we've signed with Dalian, which is a South Korean company. Yep. Uh, did that because... Um, with the blessing I might add of our Chinese shareholders, because the Chinese shareholders were were wise enough to understand that the and to feel the impact of the deteriorating, deteriorating relationship between Australia and China, that their view was that look at you know let, let's look at another partner to come in. We went with Dalian. We could sign an EPC contract with anybody in the world. After all, we're just paying the money to build something, right? Uh, and that to do the engineering and the construction, we went with. Um, Dalian for a very different reason and that was that we we're looking at a long-term partnership with them um, and and that will become evident in the near future in a couple of other ways other than just what we've announced but the important thing was that because of their size I mean they, they're building similar plants for Gazprom they've already worked with Eurochem over in Europe they're very well known in the Middle East this is a really large EPC company and because they're so large they have good access to um, banks so if anyone knows how the Japanese system has worked over the past is that if you wanted to build an airport in the Philippines, a Japanese company would tender for it. They would win it. They'd go to a Japanese bank and that bank would give them the money to do it, providing that money was spent on the Japanese company. Yep. So it was almost a circular process. Yeah. So this is exactly the same. We have a South Korean company. They've gone to a South Korean bank. That bank has said that subject to um, financial clothes, within Lee Creek next year, that they are prepared to fund up to 70% of the project. Right, well, that's huge. For a company yeah. our size, when we have a partner coming in, 
that's going to be putting at least 1.4 billion into the project in debt, right? And now it's a good time for debt, as everybody knows. The prices are so low. How low they stay for how long is a different issue, but <laughs> it is pretty damn good at the moment. Um, so they came along and said, look, okay, let's do the engineering, let's do the feasibility, the bank feasibility study, let's get ourselves to that point where the Lee Creek board does their financial close and looks at it and says, yes, it's going to make enough money, and then their bank will provide the money for that. We just have to find the 30% gap, which will not be difficult, I might add. Which is not hard to get, yeah. No. Not, in this, not, not in this environment. Particularly in this area, because everyone, everyone agrees, and we're seeing it, and I think you know, even what we're seeing with COVID spooked a few people. Right, because what you're seeing is that suddenly there's products on the supermarket shelves that aren't there anymore. Right. And I think people are sitting back going, hang on a minute, supply chain issues. If stuff's coming from overseas, can we get it in? Um, issues about is it made in Australia become very important. And I think that because we're in that fertilizer field, which is food, right? I think that, you know, it was a wise choice from a narrative point of view for us to go because I think people actually are concerned about the, the food future and security. Yeah, and securing that supply chain. Um, yep. In saying that too, uh, is, uh, I, I see there's another group in West Australia that are looking to do a, a similar thing to what you guys are doing. Do you know how far along they are? Are they in a similar space uh, that you're at or are they a bit further I behind? Well, I, I, I don't like to speak ill of other companies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we don't mind. <laughs> but I will. But I will. Um, <laughs> Uh, you're talking about Strike. So Strike yep. is a public listed company. They're sitting there over in Western Australia in the gas field. Um, they have some gas there, uh, but they'll still run into a very similar problem. We're in the, in the process. They're nowhere near us. And I might, what I mean by that is that we've already got our um, production permits from the government. Um, we've already got our EPC partner. We've already started that process. We've already done the, the pre-fees. We've already done the Tissencrop work. Um, you know, we, we are years, and I'm pretty comfortable in saying this, years ahead of them in that path. So we'll be established well before them. But they run into the same problem that everyone else runs into. If you go back to your gas price that I was talking about, if they can get, if they can get their gas out of the ground at about $3 or three fifty a gig, they're doing well. That's still triple our price. That's still triple our price. Right. And if you look at their, one of their releases recently, they, they said they were going to get their water for the urea, uh, for the ammonia plant from a desal plant. So they, had to, they were going to buy their water in from a desal plant. Let me tell you, buying water from a desal plant is not cheap. Well, so, South Australians know that. Yeah. So, um, well, it's so expensive, we don't even run it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mind, mind you, given the amount of rain that's around at the moment, you can see why they're not running at all. But. Uh, <laughs> So, so what I'm saying is that even if they get up and get going, firstly, they're over on the West Coast. Yep. Right? So, and they're close to a port. So if they want to export, they can export if they want. If they want to compete in a different market, they can. If they want to, if they want to take us on and compete in South Australia, and I might add Strike used to be a South Australian company. Um, if they want to take us on in South Australia, then so be it. We welcome the competition. But, it's, but it is interesting because when you – when you think about it like that, one one of the questions that we we received a lot when we put out a, we put out a tweet about Lee Creek and because we were interested in it uh, a few weeks ago, uh, one of the questions was, is it a pipe dream? You know, is is it is it a unicorn? Because I think a lot of farmers have have heard about you know various urea plants over the years. You know, there's going to be one in Queensland. There's going to be one here. You know, there's going to be a, a wool scouring plant in Blackhall, or this, you know, <laughs> whatever else. And and I guess 
but by the sounds of it, you know, you, you bought generators yesterday yep. um, from Siemens, a good yep. Norwegian company. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, I guess from your point of view, you, you, you're going to tell me the, what I expect the answer is, but it's not, a, it's not a pipe dream. Oh, no, if it was a pipe dream, we'd be putting gas into a pipeline. Um, <laughs> um, uh, or, or we'd be smoking something. I mean, look, look it's a fair question. And, and, and you're not an orphan when you ask the question either. You know, we sit down in front of fund managers. We sit down in front of, you know, five years ago, you sit down in front of people and, you know, you know you've got to get your licences. You've got to get four or five different licences. You've got to get a partner. You've got to get your environmental work done. You know, you're going to have problems um, getting your approvals. You've got to deal on native title issues. If you sat there and wrote down every single thing that you had to do to get to a production of an ammonia urea plant, it's scary, right? And in fact, it's daunting. If you look at it that way, it's just daunting. And sometimes it's actually nice to be ignorant, right? So you start at the start, you know what you've got to do. Each step as you go through, you de-risk the project. But if this was just a pipe dream, we wouldn't be here five years later after we started and have ticked off the box on so many different things. I mean, we've just awarded an EPC contract to one of the largest EPC contractors in the world. Do you think they would sit down and put all that effort in? You know, they've put over the 170 people into this project now, already into the project. Do you think a company that size, right, that works with Gazprom, right, and all the big players, Eurocamp, I said the we just got cut yeah. off a little bit there at the end of uh, Justin's Justin's point, but but I, I agree with you that it looks all promising, and it's good to see that we're we're getting to uh, getting to a point where it's not not a pipe dream, unless they decide to ship the gas away. Uh, yeah, Matt, you had a question. Yeah, um, well, just it was probably uh, you'd mentioned a few times there, Justin, around the you know having to go through the environmental hoops and uh, t- and t- typical. Matt's, Matt's, Matt's yeah, the resident, he's the resident greenie. Yeah, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the resident greenie in the group. But I, I do know, and a lot of people know, that South Australia are fast becoming or, or, or setting a, a precedent around the country of being the greenest state in the country. Um, what's the, what's, what is actually yep. the, the environmental credentials of the, of the plant? Okay, so um, there's, there's a couple of things there. Firstly, it's one of the reasons that we looked at um, doing ammonia and urea. Right, was the green issue. And, and that was because firstly, in South Australia, that with renewables, with wind farms and with solar, you know, you don't want to be in competition producing power from coal. You just don't want to do that. So then you had your other choices and when you looked at and when you talk about ammonia and urea, basically the only way you can make that is with either gas or coal gas. There is no other way to make the product. So we're not competing with a renewable process that's out there. We're actually sitting there um, comparable. The next thing was Blind Freddy knows that if you don't have a CO2 solution, you've got a major problem ahead of you in any project. If you look at, we're not talking about construction of a project. If you look at the ones that are already running, if they have a CO2 footprint that's out of control, they've already got problems. If you look at Santos in the, in the, the Barossa field, you know, the issue about the amount of gas that the CO2 that's coming out with that gas is an issue they are going to have to deal with. Um, if you look at the Cooper Basin, it's another issue within the Cooper Basin. So, for instance, Santos have been talking very heavily about sequestration, stripping that CO2 out and putting it back underground. So if you don't have a CO2 solution, you don't have a project. So first thing, we make we produce CO2 within the gas stream. Right? There's no hiding that. So we produce um, methane, nitrogen, hydrogen, 
CO and CO2 is our basic gas stream. But the beauty of urea is that you actually end up using a large proportion of that CO2 in the process. So, you know, you normally have, you have your ammonia that's being produced from the other gases, and then you add in the CO2 into that to make urea. So the, the product itself actually takes most of the CO2 we're going to produce. Then the other advantage we have is that um, the gasification process will leave voids underground, about six, 700 metres down underground in that coal area, which means that when we strip the CO2 out at the front end, which we can do, we can put any excess CO2 that we're not putting into the plant back down underground and it stays there. It's not in that 100 to 200 metre from the surface where it can just regasify from a liquid and then just leak. It can't do that at that depth. It stays as a liquid that will not move, right? So we have that advantage that any excess um, CO2 will go down into sequestration, no different than what's been done in many locations around the world. But from a cost point of view, it's very cheap for us to do it because we already have the wells into that area and we actually strip it at that location so we don't have to transport it. I think that, you know, the company, I, I get not frustrated, but I certainly am aware of just how important um, the CO2 issue is and the greenhouse gases issues are and the environmental issues are. And I think you can't just mouth them, right? You can't say we're going to be, you know, zero carbon CO2. Firstly, we can't say it anyway if we have no way of getting there because the ASX won't allow it because it's false and misleading, right? But secondly, as a company, we have to believe that we can do that, right? And we know we can do it. So we're very comfortable in saying that we will be a zero CO2 company producing urea, which, by the way, will be something that no one else can say. If you're importing <laughs> your urea from overseas... Yeah, yeah. And that, that was going to be my point there, Justin, as well, is that I think it's early doors in it, but we are seeing in the grains industry especially we're seeing there's more and more push for certifications. I know we're seeing it on canola and some barley where they're saying, you know, yeah. we want, you know, low emissions. And and at the moment yep. it's kind of, it's not really there yet, but it will be in five, 10 years. And and so they've done a lot of yep. research into say canola because they take canola to Canada, uh, to Europe, you know, turn it into biodiesel, but they want to make sure that it's just, you know, as carbon free as possible when it's produced one of the biggest yeah. factors of you know the the, the carbon in uh, you know the canola or, or or wheat or barley whatever it is is actually the the inputs you know so your diesel you and your yeah. and your urea yeah and like you say if you're bringing you know urea from from china when it's made you know by cracking coal or whatnot and then stick it on a boat down to yeah. down to australia then it is a, a fairly intensive it's got a lot of food miles in it <laughs> And, it, and it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because it depends on where you take the debate. And, and the industry is certainly moving down this path. You're dead right. It's not there yet, but it will be there. And, and that's the, you know, the start to finish process. You can't just, for instance, if you sell steel, you can't just say that the footprint is simply, right, the construction or the manufacturing of the steel. You have to show what you're going to do with it. You have to show how it's going to be used. You have to show if it gets recycled, how you do it. You know, it's from that right from the start to the end of a product's life that you have to account for the CO2 component of that, right? Which means for us, for instance, you know, we're going to have to look at right from the start of producing the gas to produce the ammonia, right? And then does it stop there? Does it stop at the gate where we sell it or does it 
do it, you know, is that input from the farmers an input we have to take into account? Someone is going to have to take it into account and you can't double audit, you can't double account, one or the other has to take it. I would suggest the farmers will probably take it because they can offset it against, you know, their other farming practices. Well, they've obviously easily. got a natural carbon sink anyway with the, with the crop. Right. And you're seeing that more and more. If you have a look at all the different projects that are around the place now, different businesses that are springing up on carbon farming, you know, you're starting to see some interesting things there that what's now allowed to be used yep. for a credit in the carbon system. Um, and that's because, you know, I think Lion Freddie can also see that if you don't come up with that, you're going to end up with a penalty. So that whether a carbon tax comes in, um, you know, is it going to be $10 a ton, $20 a ton or $50 a ton? And if you want to think that one through, if you start throwing something like 50 bucks a ton on carbon tax, which is being talked about, and then you have a look at how much CO2 is coming out of the ground in some of the natural gas fields, uh, it makes it, well, that's, it that's, make that is a bit of breaking news over the last couple of weeks is that Europe is looking at a carbon tariff for countries that don't have, yeah. you know, carbon plans and products that don't have carbon plans, which, you know, is probably going to be a bit of a shock potentially to, to grain farmers around the country and, and other products as well. Yeah. And, and, and just going to be another impost, you know, whether it's 40 bucks a ton or 50 bucks a ton is going to go on to the top of that. We're going to see it in, in, um, flying you're going to see it with aircraft now now planes are starting to get hit on a tax for the co2 footprint they've got with their aviation fuel um it's, it's, it's going to happen same, everywhere it's actually uh, the same with bulk shipping as well because they changed what yep. bunkers ships are allowed to use which is put the cost of bulk shipping up yeah and, and you've got a couple of the shipping lines now that think they can move to hydrogen they think they can actually move to, to hydrogen as their fuel source um so you're going to see a big change in that in the, in the near future. I mean, the biggest user of diesel in the world is the military. Yep. I don't think people realise just how much diesel is used by Russia, China and America in the military output. But, um, so, you know, your green stuff is so important. We take it to heart. You know, I, I have an environmental background. I used to be director of compliance with one of the Australian state's EPAs um, many, many years ago. Uh, my children accused me back then of, Jumping ship and um, no longer being a greenie. Well, I, I was I was what I call yeah. a rational green, and that is we we achieved some great results, by the way. But as a company, if we don't embrace mm. that, we're dead. I think I think it, nowadays it's obvious if something's if if a lip service is paid to something, it's pretty goddamn obvious nowadays. You know, and and you can't hide from yeah. any of it because you've got you know an active social media. If if you do something wrong, eventually it gets out anyway. Yep. The tr- mm. as, as, as they say in the X-Files, yeah. the truth is out there. So, no, it's really interesting to hear, I guess, what you've got to say. And uh, look, it's, it's exciting. Like, I think I if it gets off the ground in the next couple of years, then look, it will be a game changer. Uh, just, just having that yeah. extra supply on the market, you know, it will influence uh, what happens and it will, will cause big changes. So, I guess good luck in the uh... yeah right. It's not it's not an if it's a win. <laughs> um, all right, thanks guys, and um, I'll keep you keep, keep uh, your eye on it. No, you keep, you keep us there. keep us posted on what's yeah, happening. We might have you. I might have yep. you for update in a, in a year's time or something. See how you're progressing. But wait, Take no, care. See you when you got nothing on. <laughs> Ciao for now. Yeah. <laughs>